Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. What is up? What is up, sports fans? My name is Jake Anzuski. You can call me Jake Iggy or Iggy for short. And this is Iggy's Sports Talk. So you are listening to sports news and all the hottest sports topics here on Iggy Sports Talk. I am here right now recording from the Plymouth State University radio station, which is 91.7 WPCR. I greatly appreciate everybody tuning into this week's podcast, radio show, whatever you want to call it. I greatly appreciate you tuning in and joining me today to talk about some of the most exciting sports topics that have come out so far this week. And as I've talked about for the last two episodes, it's really fun to be reporting on sports at this moment in time because every single sport is going on. And the NHL just ended yesterday with the Tampa Bay Lightning holding up that Stanley Cup and winning the Stanley Cup Finals. And it was a very interesting series throughout that Stanley Cup Finals, back and forth. And it was really cool to see the Tampa Bay Lightning be able to capture that Stanley Cup Finals and get the win. So for me, on a personal note, it was very cool because... I was never a huge fan of the Tampa Bay Lightning, obviously, just because I grew up in New England. So I've always been pushed to be a Boston Bruins fan. And it always seems like any time the Bruins get just that close to being able to make it close to the Stanley Cup Finals or advance in the NHL playoffs, the Lightning are always right there to stop them right in their tracks. And so it's always just been instilled in me to root against the Lightning, root against the Lightning. But my grandparents were huge Tampa Bay Lightning fans. And anytime I would go and visit my grandparents down in Florida, they would always get so excited during the middle of the day. They'd be like, oh, wow, tonight the Lightning are playing. Who are they playing? And they would always just get so ready and plan their entire day around the Tampa Bay Lightning game. And so, unfortunately, I lost my grandfather uh, this past year. And so it was really cool to be able to see his favorite team, the Tampa Bay Lightning, being able to hoist up that Stanley Cup. And it was just a really neat experience, not only for myself and my family, because we felt like that even though my grandfather wasn't here, he was able to celebrate with the Lightning on the win that they had last night. So I have a very fun and exciting show planned for you guys today. We're going to be talking about the NBA Finals, a little bit of a preview of that. We are also going to be having a very special guest on of a guy named Jeff Rubin, who is the founder of a company called SportsMe, who I actually have the privilege to be able to have an internship with. But he is a huge Celtics fan, and I'm going to have him on the show a little bit later on, around 4 o'clock, just to give his reaction about the Celtics' unfortunate loss and what he believes the Celtics should do in the offseason to be able to improve on this past season. So... I want to start off first and talk about my favorite team in all of sports, the Boston Red Sox. So it's a time right now where the MLB is a little bit shadowed by all of the other sports going on. You know, we have the NBA playoffs going on. We have the NFL just came back and they just finished their third week. And everybody is kind of forgetting that the MLB is playing right now. So there's playoffs that just started today. And there's actually a game going on right now 
But I want to talk about a team, like I said, in the Red Sox, who weren't able to make it to the playoffs this last season. And they had a record of 24-36. and And as a Red Sox fan, it was very difficult to watch this past season. And even though it wasn't a surprise that they weren't good, obviously... I'm saying obviously like like everybody who's listening knows that the Red Sox weren't going to be good. But at the same time, when you looked at their roster, you weren't looking at this team as a competitive team, as a playoff team. And even though that the Red Sox lost Mookie Betts, that wasn't the d- definitive reason on why just evaluating the roster, why they weren't really as up to par as some of the competitive teams in the MLB. It was mainly just their pitching. Their pitching was the biggest Achilles heel all throughout the offseason and it was something that I preached that needed to be focused on and especially with a guy in the boss seat of Heim Bloom who was in charge of most of the moves that happened in Tampa Bay over the last 10 years and has built a very reputable rotation over there in Tampa Bay I thought in my mind just from Heim Bloom's past experience that he was going to flourish in his role for the Red Sox and be able to get all these great pitchers like he was able to do back in Tampa Bay and really be able to get the rotation back on where it's supposed to be because the Red Sox have so much money invested in this rotation. You know, they got $31 million invested into Chris Sale, who didn't play this past season. They have $7 million invested into Nathan Navaldi who played very well but hasn't played in these last in this he didn't play in 2019 barely at all and he and he got injured a good amount during 2020 as well and then they have Eduardo Rodriguez who was coming into the season really after his best career season uh in 2019 and had issues with COVID-19 and complications with his heart so he got shut down for the remainder of the season so the Red Sox rotation kind of got stripped clean from all the productive guys that they had at the start of the season other than Nathan Avaldi. And as a Red Sox fan, just evaluating this team, you went into this season really unknown on how Nathan Avaldi was going to perform, but he was the he was the ace. He was the full-on ace of this rotation throughout the season, and we really just saw Heim Bloom really not being able to find just a consistent pitcher that he was able to throw out there. And we saw him, you know, grab tons of guys from the waiver wire, like Zach Godley. You know, we, we saw uh, Dylan Covey. And then you just saw all these nobodies, in my opinion, just guys that I've never really heard of uh, in, in, in following baseball. And you just really saw this pitching staff really implode. And it was very difficult for, the, the offense to be able to overcompensate on what the pitching was lacking. And we saw guys like Xander Bogarts, Christian Vasquez, Jackie Bradley Jr., some of these guys really step up offensively, but everything that they did, it seemed like game after game, it's, it seemed like the pitching just imploded and just really wasn't able to do their job in the end. And that's why we saw a lot of these losses happen. But one of the main things that came out from the Red Sox is they fired their manager and Ron Renneke. Now, this didn't really come to a surprise to me. When you really saw how Ron Renneke was going into this next season, he, he started as an interim role because mostly, most Red Sox fans had the mindset, oh, we're going into this season with Alex Corey, you know, it's going to be a great season. Everything's going to be mostly as normal. 
And then the Astros scandal just exploded. And the whole reputation of Alex Cora, AJ Hinge, Jeff Lunau, all Carlos Beltran as well, all those guys associated with the Astros scandal, their careers were essentially just over. And it'll be interesting to see, obviously, what Cora is able to do after his suspension is over this next after the uh, after this next season. But when you really just look at what Ron Renicky, the expectations going into this next into this past season for Ron Renicky, it was kind of just the Reds. The Red Sox kind of just had the mindset of we're in a weird position. This is a shortened season, so just go out there and do the best that you can. And you know, you kind of give got to give Rob, Ron credit. He didn't really have a ton of help in terms of preparing for this role. You know, he kind of just got thrown in there a week or two right before spring training. So it's not like he was able to pre- pre- prepare all throughout the offseason. Oh, yes, I'm going to be the manager. Let me figure out who's going to be in our starting rotation. Let me figure out what the lineup's going to be. Let me work with Haim, the, the president of baseball operations, throughout the offseason so we can be as successful as possible. But he didn't have that time. He only had two weeks. And so... When you really just look at this record, you can't really blame it all on Ron Renneke. But in all fairness for Ron, it's not really like he had a, a very big future with the Red Sox because he, d- he did start off as their bench coach, and then we really saw that he got put in that interim role just because Alex Cora just had to get parted ways and his entire rotate his entire reputation was just ruined and so a few guys who could be looked at as replacements is matt contrera matt contrero excuse me who is the former Rays bench coach uh mark kotze who played for the red sox in uh 2008 and 2009 sam fold sam fold is another guy who actually played for the Rays uh, under Bloom from 2011 to 2013. And it was interesting to hear what Bloom's response was on if Alex Cora would return to the Red Sox or not. And he essentially said, I still don't want to get into detail on my thoughts on Alex. Bloom notes that he wouldn't do it till he talked to Alex Cora. And he said, there will be time when I can get into more detail on Alex in his situation, but that time is not now. I actually just got a question from my good friend Mike Mancini in the Instagram live comments, which says, what is the future of the Red Sox as a franchise? So that's a great question, Mike. And it's something when you look at the Red Sox as a team, as a roster right now, there's a lot of versatility in their offense. And that, in my opinion, is a huge advantage because not a lot of teams have the kind of versatility that the Red Sox have. Most teams have players that can only play their main position. So, you know, you have a third baseman, you have a second baseman, you have a shortstop, you have a first baseman. All those players can only play that position. Now, the Red Sox have four to five guys that can play multiple positions in the infield and the outfield as well. So let's say somebody gets hurt or somebody needs a break and needs to go on the bench. They have some very productive guys that they're able to take from their bench or from another position and just move them over. And so with that versatility, it gives the Red Sox a lot of options and helps them be able to be as competitive as, po- as possible. It doesn't matter who's out, on, who's out there on the field. But the one thing that they really need to focus on during this next offseason is the pitching. And the Red Sox have some real good guys in their rotation, kind of like I talked about at the start of the show, with Chris Sale, who is going to be coming back from Tommy John surgery and is most likely going to be coming back into form because he's had a lot of time to be able to prepare not only for 2021, but to be able to recover from Tommy John surgery. 
And then you have a guy like Eduardo Rodriguez. Don't really know how he's going to come back just because he had those heart complications due to COVID-19. But then you have Avaldi after him as well. But the Red Sox do have some good guys in the rotation. It's not like when you look at this rotation, it, it you just lose confidence. and You're like, oh, shoot. Well, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to improve this in the offseason. So I guess we're screwed for 2021. Especially when you look at the free agency market, it's not like there's a lot of marquee guys where if the Red Sox sign them and just throw money at them, that they're just going to fix their problems just like that. Snap of a finger. It's not going to happen like that. So the Red Sox have some good guys in Nick Pavetta, who they traded uh, from the Yankees for uh, Brandon Workman and also Heath Hembree. And then they also called up a guy like Tanner Houck, who has been performing very well for the Red Sox so far and has three games under his belt, a record of 3-0, and and also an ERA of 0.53. And in all of the games that Houck has pitched, he has only allowed two to three hits. And especially in his first start, he only allowed, he had a one-hitter, he had a shutout, and he also struck out seven guys. And so there's a lot of things to be happy about for this Red Sox 2020 season. It's not like it was a, it was a complete trash shoot it's not like it was a complete waste we learned a lot from this Red Sox season and it really gave a more clear picture of what the Red Sox are going to look like during this next season and one of the main things like I talked about really answering Mike's question was the versatility that the Red Sox have but also when you look at as as well they have some really exciting young prospects that are coming up I brought up Tanner Houck Another guy is Tristan Castis as well. He's a guy who we saw, he got called up to the alternate league, and I honestly thought right when they did that, he was going to be called up a few weeks later because we saw Castis just hitting bombs. Like, it, it was unreal. He was hitting balls that were going four, 449, like it was nobody's business. And he could do the same exact thing at Fenway, and be a perfect person to go into that first base slot because as we saw this past trade deadline, the Red Sox traded Mitch Moreland. So it's kind of up in the air on who is going to be covering that first base spot. You have another guy named Bobby Dalbeck who did come up uh, as a promotion in, in late September, and he did a great job. He had 80 up at bats with an average of 263, eight home runs. And when you look at those eight home runs, you know, you're looking at that 80 up at bats, and you're like, well, you know, he, he was able to hit a home run 10% of the time. But, I mean, when you really just look at it, he had five home runs in five straight games. And that was a record. And so when a Red Sox rookie is doing things like that, and when you also look at another guy like like I brought up as well, Tanner Houck, when two rookies are performing like that, it gives you some a, sen- a sense of confidence going into 2021. And also with the versatility as well. Bobby Dalback can play first base and third base. Tristan Castis can play DH, first base, and third base. That's just, the, that's just the versatility like I talked about before. And so these guys could easily be slotted into places in the draft chart, or the depth chart, excuse me, very easily for 2021. And with that experience, that'll really be able to help these guys be able to develop into players that the Red Sox are hoping will be superstars and help them get back to competitiveness. Because when you really looked at some of the comments that came out from the Red Sox ownership this past uh, uh, this past afternoon, excuse me, uh, we really heard that Sam Kennedy, the president of the Red Sox, really focused on that the Red Sox are 
really just trying to get back to being competitive. They want to get that competitive culture back, that competitive nature. And that will obviously help them with the revenue back at Fenway because I know every single Red Sox fan and even even some baseball fans are missing going to Fenway Park in the atmosphere of the Red Sox. And if the Red Sox are able to really build that excitement and motivate fans to go back to the stadium, it's going to be a great revenue year for the Red Sox. But lastly, the last thing that I just wanted to bring up for some of the things that you got to be happy about for the Red Sox 2020 season is the bullpen. The bullpen is something that has been the Achilles heel ever since it seems like forever. I, I mean, I was just trying to think of a year of that definitive when it started, but it seems like there's been an issue with the Red Sox bullpen, I guess, ever since I started watching the Red Sox. But... I mean, it really just started when Dave Dombrowski sa- said, no, you know, the bullpen's fine. We-, we don't need to worry about the bullpen. Everything's okay. You know, guys are out there letting up six runs. But, you know, it's fine. It's fine. You know, we're losing games, and the bullpen is the main reason on why we're losing. But, you know, we're just going to ignore that. Like, it- it- it's not even a thing. So, Hein Bloom didn't do that. And he took his knowledge that he had over in Tampa Bay with being able to evaluate these pitchers and find these guys who are really underrated in teams and in, in guys that teams are really undervaluing and being able to look at their weaknesses, pick them up and focus on their weaknesses. So then they're able to be productive players and really show their full value. And it's really interesting when you look at what Heim Bloom was able to do with a guy like Phil Valdez, who was able to pitch 24 games. He had an ERA of 326 and he struck out 30 guys. But when you look at the ERA of 326, you're kind of looking at that, and it's like, eh, you know, that's, that's okay. Usually when you're looking at a bullpen guy, you want them to have around a two or three ERA. I mean, if, you, if you're one of the best bullpen guys in the league, you're going to have a, around a, one, a 1.60, uh, you know, below two ERA. But, I mean, Valdez would always come into these Red Sox games in very difficult situations, and he would always find a way to get himself out of it. And what was interesting about Valdez is he did that consistently. And most of the time when he came in, when you looked at it, or or just over the history of bullpen guys in general, bullpen guys usually just go in there for one inning just to clean up the inning and to to, to get the team out of a certain situation or just to get them out of the inning. But Valdez would just consistently pitch three innings very effectively. And it was very interesting to hear the evaluation from a guy like uh, Dennis Eckersley when he brought up how effective Valdez was, and especially his pitches as well. He had pinpoint control, and it was just interesting to see some of the batters' reactions when they actually did strike out because of Valdez, and they just looked at him and they were like, oh, wow. Uh, (laughs) Didn't think that was a strike because he would just have these sliders or these curveballs that would go in and out of the zone and... As just a fan, your jaw would drop, and you'd be like, wow, this kid's good. So there's a lot of things to be excited about for the Red Sox, just in terms of their future and some of the guys that could be helping them stay competitive uh, during, during these next few seasons coming up. But it'll be a really interesting offseason, especially in terms of what is going to happen with the managerial position, because I really think that Heim Bloom is really going to be mainly focusing on finding a young guy who really 
sort of caters to his analytical mind, but mainly just focuses on uh, just the relationships that they have with the players. Because we saw that Alex Cora was really successful with, with that, and that's one of the biggest reasons why he was so successful. But when you really just look at it, um, I think that Heim Bloom is going to have a lot of issues with just trying to figure out what are the best guys to be able to figure who are the best guys to be able to help him uh, you know, stay competitive and all that sort of stuff. So let's look now at what it'll look like for the MLB playoffs. So when you really just look at it, it's going to be kind of interesting because now that there's 10 teams instead of, uh, instead of 16, and so this is really going to make everything very interesting for these playoffs and how they're really going to pan out. So let's really look at what the expanded playoffs now are going to look, at, look like. Sorry about that for everybody on the live. I just needed to fix something with my phone. But when you really look at it, oops, sorry about that. So when you really look at it, the expanded playoffs, you know, you have the Dodgers and the Brewers, you got the Braves, the Reds, and then you got the Cubs versus the Marlins, and then you got the Padres versus the Cardinals. And so, especially for the National League, it's really going to be interesting to see how the Dodgers really play and how they're able to utilize all the star talent that they do have in their, in their pitching rotation and their bullpen to be able to help them. Because as I explained in last episode, excuse me, last week's radio, radio show, pitching is going to be the biggest, biggest way for teams to be able to get the advantage. Because how the schedules are all set up is teams are going to be playing all these games in a row. And so it's not going to be like the one to five starters are going to start and that goes back up to the one because then those pitchers aren't going to have enough time to be able to rest. And so you're going to see a lot of teams using the opener approach or even use their bullpen much earlier just because they don't want to overuse their pitching rotation and so that then they can keep those pitchers, those effective pitchers, especially uh, later for for, for the later games, then they're able to come up big. We were able to see this kind of, kind of used, especially with Madison Bumgarner, when he was a huge part of the Giants being able to win those few World Series. And so it'll be really interesting to see how these teams, are, like I said, are able to utilize these different strategies and use their bullpens to their advantage, especially in these new sort of st- circumstances in the playoffs. So when you look at the American League as well, it's going to be kind of interesting. We have the Rays versus the Blue Jays. And then we have the Athletics versus the White Sox. And then lastly, or not lastly, excuse me. Then we have the Twins versus the Astros. And then we have the Indians versus the Yankees. And so I'm just going to give my predictions real quick on who I think is going to win these games uh, for the expanded playoffs. So starting with the Dodgers versus Brewers, I honestly see the Dodgers coming away with this series very easily. Just because the Dodgers, when you really look at their pitching, they are the best team set up for these expanded playoffs. Their bullpen is one of the best in the league. Their rotation is one of the best in the league. And it's just going to be really interesting to see how they're able to utilize that to their advantage and how that's going to be able to help them stay effective and keep those runs very low. And so now let's look at as well with the Braves and the Reds. Now, the Braves are a team who have been rebuilding for a good amount of time, but now they're finally about to be competitive. And so we're going to be able to see 
on how their rotation is going to be able to help them because they have some really good young guys in their rotation. And so it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how they're going to be able to utilize that, especially against a team like the Reds, who have one of the best rotations statistically with Luis Castillo, Trevor Bauer, and then also Sonny Gray as well. And so we're going to be able to see this Reds team who really spent a lot of money this past offseason to be able to really get their team competitive. And we really are going to be able to see guys like Nick Castellanos, Mike Moustakas as well, really have to step up and find a way to get to these Braves pitchers early so then they're able to you know, utilize these, these interesting games to be able to find a way to advance. And so now looking on to the Cubs and the Marlins, we're really going to be able to see with the Marlins how good are they because we really saw them really surprise a lot of people throughout this season and find a way to use all their, different, all their depth, even though they had all these issues with COVID-19 positive tests and all these issues with injuries as well. We saw the Marlins, didn't matter what happened to them, they were always able to come up big and find way to find ways to win games. So they're going to be playing against the Cubs, and I really think that that's going to be an interesting game when it comes to the, you know, the pitching matchups as well and how these offenses really stack up against each other. I honestly see the Cubs being able to win this game, uh, but I, I think that the Marlins will still keep it competitive because, like I said, doesn't matter what happened to the Marlins throughout this past season. They always kept it, they always kept it competitive. So now looking at the last series for the National League is the Padres and the Cardinals. So the Padres, other than the Marlins, have been one of the most surprising and effective teams so far in this MLB 2020 season. We've seen Fernando Tatis Jr. being a guy who could win the MVP I honestly think that he has a really good chance to. But their rotation also really coming into themselves. And the Padres were a team coming into this season who had a lot of young guys. But it did nobody really know, knew how that they were going to be able to meld together and develop together. And we saw the Padres really come into their own and show, show everybody in the MLB and mostly their fans what to look forward to for years to come. And so we're going to see a competitive Padres team go against a team like the St. Louis Cardinals who kind of who who kind of limp themselves to the playoffs, but I honestly see the Padres being able to get this win and advance in the playoffs. So now let's looking at, let's look at the American League as well with the Tampa Bay Rays versus the Toronto Blue Jays. The Rays, uh, I honestly think that since the Rays have a much better pitching depth and they also utilized the opener all throughout this last season and also seasons before as well, I could see them making this this series very competitive with the Blue Jays. And we were able to see the Rays too. They were the, the best offensive, just average-wise mainly, in terms of statistics, offensive t- statistics in 2020. And so... I think that their offense and pitching are going to be huge in being able to stay competitive against this Blue Jays team. But overall, I think that the Rays are going to win this series and ultimately advance in the playoffs. And then let's look at as well with the Athletics and the White Sox. So I think that this is honestly going to be the most competitive series out of all of them. So the White Sox are a team that everybody is so high on. But they're a team that has also lost seven of the last eight games that they've played. And so I think that it's going to be a very tight series because the Athletics are 
ultimately, ultimately a very good team with a lot of good pitching depth. But I think that with the bats that the White Sox do have, I ultimately think that they are going to be able to pull this off and get this win. I mean, you got Aloy Jimenez, you got Luis Robert, and you got all these guys that are really going to help this White Sox team be able to overcompensate against this very effective athletics team. And so now looking next, we got the Twins and the Astros. So since the Astros have all this all these injuries in the rotation. We saw Justin Verlander, you know, one of their only good pitchers right now is Zach Greinke. Then they also have Lance McCullers as well, but at the same time, how is that really going to stack up against the Twins? Now, the Twins have one of the most uh, powerful lineups in all of the MLB, and I think that they're really going to dominate with their power. It's going to be interesting to see how Nelson Cruz, a 40-year-old who usually comes up huge during the playoffs, is going to play a role in this series. We were able to see him back when he played for Texas. I think he hit like three home runs in the World Series in one game, and he was just always just he would always just dominate in the clutch clutch situations for the Texas Rangers. So I think that he's honestly going to play a big role in this Twins and Astros series, but ultimately I could see the Twins coming away with this series. Then lastly, we got the Cleveland Indians and the New York Yankees. So this is going to be an interesting series. I think that it's going to be a tight, very competitive series, but ultimately the Yankees are going to come out with the win. I just don't see with with the Indians offense, I don't see them being able to stack up against the Yankees offense and being able to align. Uh, you know, I, I really don't see them as comparable offenses. You know, the pitching is going to be interesting with all the injuries and the lack of depth that the Yankees do have in their pitching, and especially the struggles coming out of their uh, bullpen. I think that that's going to hurt them a little bit during the series. But when you look at the other side, other than Shane Bieber, who do the Indians really have? And so it's really going to be interesting to see how these pitching staffs really stack up in offenses as well. But ultimately, I could see the Yankees being able to come away with this win and being able to advance on to the next series. So I'm just going to take a break real quick. Uh, and, and when I come back, we're going to be talking with Jeff Rubin about the NBA Finals and his reaction to what, help, to what happened with the Celtics. So I'll be right back. What is up, guys? And we are back on Iggy's Sports Talk. And I have a very special guest with me coming on right now to the show. His name is Jeff Rubin, who is the founder of SportsMe and is a huge Red Sox fan. And I figured I would bring on Jeff not only to hear his thoughts on the NBA Finals and what those are going to look like, but also I wanted to hear his thoughts about the Celtics series. So, Jeff, how you doing? Yeah, you know, the Red Sox season was a really tough one. And I think that it's looking up now, especially now that Ron Renneke isn't the manager and now that they're looking towards the future. But I wanted to get on to the Celtics. You know, it, it was it was a heartbreaking loss. And especially for a Celtics fan like myself, I was so confident that they were going to get to, get to Game 7. So what were your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, my thoughts are the better team did not win the series. They beat themselves. Turnovers, bad Uh, 
that he didn't win. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And it seemed like every single time the Celtics got down to those few minutes right before the game was about to end, it seemed like everything fell apart. And so where do you think, what do you think the Reds, Red Sox, excuse me, what do you think that the Celtics did? Uh, what do you think is the biggest reason why they lost this series? Mm-hmm. And Brad Stevens in the huddle said, "You look like the Celtics. I haven't seen this team in a couple of games, all series. I bits and pieces of Celtics basketball. I don't know who that other team was that I saw. They've stupid bonehead plays. You know, I, that, that's really what it comes down to. It's just con- just bad decision making. Turnovers killed us, and the Heat capitalized. So we'll give it to them." Yeah, I mean, you really just saw it, and it seemed like any time the Celtics had something going for them, they just turned it over. And as a Celtics fan, you you just put your hands on your head, and you're like, "What? what is going to happen for this team to be able to snap out of it? I, I was so frustrated throughout this entire series, more than I think I, I have ever been for a Celtics playoff series. Just watching some of the plays they made just made me so angry. Yeah, I agree with you. And when you look at one guy that really stepped up, you know, everybody was talking about Tyler Hero, but one guy who kind of got shadowed was Bam. You know, I I mean, he scored 32 points in Game 6 alone. And so what do you think the Celtics could have done differently to stop Bam? I mean, Bam's a good player. You know, Bam, he wasn't like this at Kentucky. He was not the dynamic passer that he is now. You know, I think when it comes to stopping Bam, off the charge. You can't stop that, right? In my mind, they didn't let him shoot the ball. Like, make him shoot from outside. If you're tight, you know, give him a, you know, give him an extra foot. You know, you don't need to be right on him. And that little play that they did, the pick and roll was killing us. But the play that killed us the most was when he would fake the handoff or fake the pass and then go right to the basket. Like, if there was a help defender who could come over and prevent that at all, it would have at least, you know, caused him some issues. But they didn't do that. Right. And again, you know, Bam is a unique player. You know, Tice, sure, Tice can guard him. But, you know, when when Bam is, you know, full down ahead, you know, he, he he's, a, he's a tough guy to stop. I mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen this series against the Lakers. I don't even know if I'm going to watch. I'm so, I'm so angry. I, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. It seemed like any time the Celtics tried to do anything for to, to stop Bam, it, it just wasn't working for them. And I want to ask you, one guy who, I am, at least me, myself, I had so much confidence in Jason Tatum going into this series, really hoping that he was going to help carry this Celtics offense. And we saw early on, a lot of the games, he had a lot of struggles and issues just being able to score the ball. But how do you think that really affected the Celtics' you know, scoring numbers in the end?
three or four years before pageant, you know, uh, uh, Phil Jackson, Pat Jackson, Phil Jackson could be like, hey, you know, change as a player, use your teammates more. For Michael Jordan, it was use your teammates more and you will become a better player. For Jason Tatum, I don't know what it is, but I'm sure Brad Stevens can find that one thing that'll turn him into this next elite player. I think he's very close. His defense has gotten so much better. Look, I'm excited to see him and Jalen continue. I think Jalen is going to be a superstar. Maybe not a superstar. I think he's going to be an all-star type player. I think Marcus is is an awesome player. I look. I love Gordon Hayward. I don't think he's going to be worth $34 million, so I don't know what they do. I would love to see the Celtics sign um, John Blank, free agent from, uh, uh, um, from the Nuggets. Um, uh, I know you're talking about. I just can't think of the name. <laughs> Right. Um, we both know who we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They need to sign someone like that. They need to sign another, another, another shooter. Look, they have a couple of draft picks, and if the Heat can get Tyler Hero late in the lottery, we have a late lottery pick. We need to get a dynamic player, and um, you know, we'll see what happens. So one of my good friends, Jake O'Donnell, who's actually coincidentally my, one of my roommates, he, he put in the comments, and you had very high praise of Jason Tatum uh, before, and I completely agree with everything. But I just want to hear your reaction on who do you think is a better player, Fred Van Vleek or Jason Tatum? You go. Is that, is that a real question? Because <laughs> you Mm-hmm. And again, the Celtics, the Celtics lost. Miami didn't win. Um, we killed ourselves. But if, if we don't have any chance to sign him, I think he wants to get paid. I would love to see him next to Kemba Walker and and and, and, uh, and Marcus Smart. You know, I, I don't know how that can happen unless we do something with like I don't even know if the amnesty clause is still available for um, for uh, for Gordon anymore. But he's good, man. I, I don't right. know if he's an all star. I don't think he's an all star. You know, I loved his game at Wichita State. He was one of my favorite players in college basketball for that tournament. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I just think if he signs with the Knicks, that's a bad move. He, he cannot be, he has Lowry next to him. He cannot be the only point guard. Right. I agree with you. And so, like, when you really look at what the Celtics can do over this next offseason, you know, you brought you brought up uh, potentially looking to trade Gordon Hayward and add, add a few shooters and, the, and that kind of stuff. But, do what do you think the Celtics could be able to get for Gordon Hayward, and do you think it's a possibility that that they could trade him? I don't know, and I'm nervous to not know because you know, again, you know, Danny is a master at this exact thing. I'm sure they're looking at the numbers. I'm sure you know, is it worth trading Gordon Hayward's contract and a first round pick to get some 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 cap room? I would say yes, right? Mm-hmm. Like, let's win now. And look, Gordon is a great player. He's just at, he's just not worth 30, 34 million dollars. Right. I would pay fifteen million dollars for Gordon, mm-hmm. and with another fifteen, you can sign, you know, Grant, uh, Grant uh, who's on uh, on the Nuggets. Right. Um, although he might get overpaid, maybe he's underrated. I don't know. But you know, you you know, sign some of those guys who are just off the bench can like hit threes. You know, the Celtics they just needed another shooter, another another shooter 
and then guys who play good defense because this is a defensive team. Right. They have the best, in my opinion, the best coach in the entire NBA. So we'll see. And so now going on to the NBA Finals where it's the Lakers and Heat. And in my opinion, I could honestly see it, it's it's not it's not like a very strong argument in my opinion, but Kobe is going to have some sort of influence on this series in one way or the other. Just the motivation from the Lakers. But how how do you think that Bam and Tyler Hero um, are really going to play or are really going to impact this series? I think. I mean, uh, I hate the Lakers. I hope the Lakers <laughs> sweep. I hope the Lakers sweep in every every game is a thirty point win. I don't care if the Lakers end up getting another title. I just don't want the Miami Heat to get a title. So I don't even want them to win a game. So I hope Miami just fails miserably. But I'm still that disappointed. But look, I think. I think Bam is going to cause more issues for the Lakers. It, uh, you know, I guess it depends. If LeBron guards Bam, he'll shut down Bam. Right? Yeah, it's over. I just, you know, like Tyler Hero, is it Danny Green? Is it Danny Green? Is it Kuzma? Is it, you know, and it's not even Tyler Hero. The guy that I worry about for the Lakers is Duncan Robinson. You know, Duncan Robinson... And, and, and Goran Dragic, you know, he is, you know, I, 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 I don't know, um, uh, well, I'm just drawing a blank. Who's the point guard? Who's the, the small point guard for the, for the Lakers? Um, uh, I'm drawing a I know one of their point guards is Rondo. Rondo, that's about it. No, no, not Rondo, the other dude. Um, yeah, I'm just going to Jake O'Donnell, tell us who it is. Google that. <laughs> I'm looking right now. Oh, oh, Cardwell Pope, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, 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 him too. So, you know, I think they, I don't know, you know, Dragic was what hurt us more than I thought. Um, I don't know, whoever guards him in the Lakers needs to just know that he's a bulldog and he's going to, you know, he's going to drive to the paint, he's going to put his head down, he's going to make some tough shots. And look, this team is athletic and they make some good passes, they have some good shooters, they have some playmakers, and then who guards, uh, you know, who guards, um, uh, uh, what, oh my god, John Blank's all over the place, uh, Butler, you know, I don't know who's going to guard Butler, LeBron, does he go Butler, does he go Bam, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know, but again, who on the Heat is going to guard AD, LeBron, and Jarrell McGee, um, was that? Right. That's like one of my friends was saying. He's like, "Well, Bam's doing what he's doing with the Celtics right now, but once AD gets on him, he's like, it's over." I agree with you. I mean, especially especially that last second shot. That was unreal. And so ultim- ultimately, your your pick for the NBA Finals is the Lakers. I think the Lakers sweep. I think the Lakers sweep. Awesome, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I think, I think it's either going to four or five games, and uh, the, the Lakers are going to be able to win it for Kobe. I mean, we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, for Kobe or not for Kobe, I 
to being better than Michael Jordan in that LeBron versus Jordan debate. And, you know, if he wins another title, that debate, which never stops. I, that, know, that's why I'm laughing. I mean, I've I've heard that debate ever since I started. Ever since I started, even you know, watching sports, all I've heard about is 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 LeBron better or is, or is uh, MJ better? But I really appreciate you coming on today, Jeff. And for everybody who's watching right now, don't forget go over and check out Sports Me. Go on the App Store right now. It doesn't matter if it's Android or Apple. Sports Me is an app where you can give your sports take, and then other users will reply, give their sports take, and then other users are able to vote on who they agree with most and whoever gets the most points after the after 24 hours wins and sports me has a lot of exciting stuff coming as well with integrating with different sports athletes as well yeah it, it certainly is fun hop on check it out jake o'donnell looking at you <laughs> i'll definitely t- tell jake about it but i appreciate you coming on jeff and i'll talk to you later all right Iggy. thanks for having me absolutely All right, so that was Jeff Rubin on the show. I hope you guys did really enjoy our synopsis of what the NBA Finals is going to look like. And I found it kind of interesting hearing about his response to the Celtics' loss and really what they could do in the offseason to really improve uh, because I think that they got a lot of things that they got to do to fix this roster, and one of them is, is trading Gordon Hayward. So I want to go on now to talk about what happened in week three of the NFL. So there's a lot of exciting things that came out of this week three, and one of them was a new quarterback in Chicago. Now Nick Foles is the starting quarterback for the Chicago Bears, and we saw this after Mitchell Trubisky got taken out in the middle of the game. And so it's not like Mitch really even had that bad of a game. I mean, when you really just look at the stats – it's, it's something where you're very surprised as a fan that he was, he, was, he was just hooked for the backup. Even though the backup, Nick Foles, is ultimately better, in my opinion, and his stats stack up very comparably, but at the same time, most of the time, a guy has to throw two picks, you know, barely get any sort of yardage whatsoever to be pulled from a game. And so Nick Foles came in for Mitchell Trubisky and started slinging. He threw for three touchdowns in the fourth quarter and ultimately got the Bears a win. But when you just look at what has been going on with Nick Foles ever since he won that Super Bowl with the Eagles, he's only played five games. And we saw him sign that huge contract with the Jacksonville Jaguars and ultimately get traded because he got injured after just one game. Gardner Minshew came in and replaced him, played much better than most people expected him to. And so the Jaguars decided to bench Nick Foles and then ultimately trade him in the offseason to the Chicago Bears. So now Nick Foles is the head of this Bears offense. And I can honestly see this, this battle of the quarterback in Chicago going back and forth for the rest of the season because who knows how Nick Foles is going to be do, going to be able to perform over these next few games. It's only week three. We're going on to week four. And so you could honestly see Nick Foles play six more games until week 10 and then get pulled. And then Mitchell Trubisky plays the rest of it. But Mitchell Trubisky is kind of in a weird position right now because he's a free agent at the end of this season. So 
He needs to try and do everything he can to not only build up his value for this free agency, for the money aspect of it, but also so he still has a job in 2021. Because we saw him after last season, who's atrocious, and everybody was just yelling, yelling for the Bears to bench him or trade him or just release him in general because he just was not performing to the standard that most people expected him to. Now, the Bears traded a lot. They traded a first-round pick, like a second-round They trade. They trade a lot of draft picks, a lot of draft capital for Mitchell Drabisky to actually just go up from the three up to the two. But Mitchell Drabisky, like I said, just has not been performing up to the standard of what most people thought. After his first season, he was okay. Second season, he really showed that he was he was uh, he was getting better and he was developing. But then after last season, it, it was it was just atrocious. But when you really look at Trubisky's stats over the course of this game, he completed 13 passes on 22 attempts. He threw for 128 yards total. He had a touchdown and a pick. And so, I guess just from what, what I evaluated from watching the game. He just wasn't able to get the offense down the field. And the Bears wanted to switch it up and see if Foles was really able to motivate this offense to be able to find a way to drive them down that football field. So listening to ESPN's reaction to this this morning, I found it very interesting because they explained why this decision was made in-game compared to before the game. And who knows if this is 100% true this is 100% accurate, but it seems to make sense. Now, the general manager has a lot really hang on, or uh, he, he has a lot on Mitchell Trubisky. And when you really when you really just look at what this GM has put up for Mitchell Trubisky, it's, it's essentially just his whole job. And he's the guy who drafted all this draft capital for the quarterback and who's really just stuck with him uh, just throughout this entire tenure of his NFL career. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens obviously next week, but many people think, like, like I said, ESPN uh, predicted that this decision was made in-game because the off- the front office and the head coach was so divided on this decision that if the head coach made it in-game, then there couldn't be any changes or any influence from the front office. And so it's really going to be interesting, like I said, to see how this all pans out throughout the season. But I'm a believer that the Bears could look for a quarterback in the 2021 draft. Now, we have a lot of very premier quarterbacks coming out of this next draft. You know, we got Trevor Lawrence, we got Justin Fields. And with a team like the Bears, who have a guy like Nick Foles for the next, I think it's two to three years, they have a guy like Nick Foles as their backup or as their starter for that long, and they could draft a guy now and use Nick Foles to help them develop. And I think that that would be a great option for the Bears just to be able to have some sort of future, some sort of confidence that for the fan base to know that their team is going to be competitive down the line. Because, I mean, they spent all this money on the defense. They trade all these draft picks for Khalil Mack. And we're just seeing that this Bears team isn't really performing up to the standard that most people expected them to. Now looking at the other side of the football, why does Dan Quinn still have a job? He should be fired. Dan Quinn is a guy who blew 
the 28-3 lead from the Patriots. And we saw back in 2016, he lost the Super Bowl because his defense just imploded. And to the best of my knowledge, he's a defensive-minded coach. So in the last two weeks, he's blown leads late. And we even saw it back in 2016. He blew a huge lead to ultimately lose the Super Bowl. And so four years later, why the hell does this guy still have a job? Because when you just look at the record ever since his Super Bowl loss, it doesn't scream success. It, it screams mediocrity because he's 24 for 24 since 2016. And every other year, he has fired his offensive coordinator or his defensive coordinator. And so he's essentially just blaming all these struggles on these different coaches that he hired. And that makes zero sense to me whatsoever that the owner still has confidence in this head coach to be able to lead a team deep into the playoffs, not only deep into the playoffs, but to a freaking Super Bowl. And to have the confidence that if he makes it to the Super Bowl, that he's not going to blow it. If I was the owner, if I was the fans in Atlanta, I would have zero confidence in Dan Quinn to be able to do just that. Especially when your team is 0-3 right now, but you have a top five quarterback in Matt Ryan. Maybe not top five. Maybe like top eight. But you have a, you have a top three wide receiver in Julio Jones. Pretty good defense. And you're telling me that you're going to blow two leads in a row, especially against especially against a team like the Bears? Come on. Give me a break. So the owner of the Atlanta Falcons really needs to wake up and figure out what he's doing because Dan Quinn is not getting the job done, and he needs to be fired by tomorrow. It, it just makes no sense that he even still has a job even today. So now looking at the New England Patriots, they're finally coming together. As a Patriots fan, I'm finally gaining much, much more confidence each week that the Patriots are very similar, are going to play very competitive, competitively and similarly to what they have done over these past 20 years. So Cam Newton's stats don't really paint the full picture of what he was able to do last Sunday. Now, Cam wasn't spectacular to start off the game, to say the, to say the least. He, he forced an interception, and I just remember turning on the TV and seeing that Cam had an atrocious <laughs> completion percentage. He only threw for 90 yards after the first quarter, and just to see Derek Carr just slinging the football. But ultimately, the Patriots were able to pick it up and find a way to get this win in the end. But you really got to give kudos to Cam Newton over these past few weeks, and especially this week, because we really saw Cam Newton get much, much more comfortable within the pocket, and one plus was he didn't run the ball as much. So we saw him try and take a lot of time to step back in the pocket, find and see if anybody's open, and obviously throw the ball if somebody's open, but at the same time, he didn't just stop and tuck and tuck and run and try, and try and get a first down like it seems like he did in his debut. But even so, I saw a play that I, I in my 20 years of watching Tom Brady, I've never seen Tom even do this close. There was a play where 
there was two guys that came in rushing on Cam Newton. He ducked one. He ducked the other. And then he was just able to shoot up the middle and get a 25-yard rush for a touchdown. No, excuse me, not for a touchdown, for, for a first down. And that's when you just really saw how comfortable Cam Newton is getting in this Patriots offense. And we saw it as well with what he was able to do with Rex Burkhead. I mean, Burkhead scored two touchdowns. But with what he was able to do with just throwing the ball in the backfield, being confident to make those plays when they're that close to the line of scrimmage, because when you are really thinking about those kinds of plays, you really got to be mindful about making sure that the defense isn't blitzing, that they're not rushing tons of guys, and just to be mindful that you're not pitching it to a guy or throwing it to a guy behind the line of scrimmage to where he's just going to get bombarded by all these defensive linemen. And so Cam did a really good job and obviously showed that they practiced this uh, before, but throughout this game, he just looked very comfortable with throwing the football, and especially with a guy like Nikhil Harry. We're really seeing that relationship between Cam Newton and Nikhil Harry really start to grow and that is really making me very confident because, you know, Nikhil Harry was one was the top pick for the Patriots two years ago. And then he got injured, and then Brady barely threw to him. He kind of just ignored him. And we saw Cam Newton really take the time this past offseason to prepare with his, with his wide receivers and his potential teammates for this upcoming season to get them ready to be able to be as effective as possible. And Nikhil Harry is a guy who I'm very happy to see as being very effective uh, with not only catching the football and getting open, but he's also doing a very good job of finding ways to get yardage after the catch. And so now I'm going to be looking at as well what happened on the other side of the football. And so when you really just look at what Derek Carr was able to do compared to what he's been able to do over the course of his career just in general, Derek Carr has really surprised me so far this season. Derek Carr, if it wasn't for those two fumbles that were lost, if it wasn't for the turnovers and the missed opportunities by his offense and the guys around him, we could have seen this Raiders team not only make this game much, much more close, but ultimately win this game in the end. When you look at what Derek Carr was able to do, just throwing, throwing the ball efficiently, He only completed eight passes. So he was 24 for 32, threw for 261 yards, and two touchdowns. And so he's a guy who really did a good job of not being, not getting tentative in the pocket, you know, not feeling rushed. And even though there was a lot of guys coming at him because the Patriots did a great job defensively this past game, he was able to really do a good job of just wait back there in the pocket, find his guy open, and sling it over there. We didn't really see a lot of inconsistency from Derek Carr just with with throwing the ball in general. And that's something that I would call a very strong improvement compared to what Derek Carr has done throughout the course of his career. And so it was very cool to see this Raiders team, a team who just two years back everybody thought was in a full-blown rebuild. You know, they traded guys like Amari Cooper, Khalil Mack, and we saw John Gruden come in and kind of blow everything up and start a whole new culture, which really made a lot of people nervous that it might not fully work out just the way that John Gruden's coaching style uh, is in general. 
But we're really seeing this team, not only this defense, but offense as well, uh, really overperform from people's expectations. And it's going to be interesting to see how both of these teams stack up uh, later down the line over the course of this season. But a team like the Patriots, who everybody was really underestimating what they were able to do, not only because they lost Tom Brady, but they also lost 10 guys due to opt-outs. And then they also had the hardest schedule compared to anybody in the NFL. And so when you stack all that up, all the odds are stacked up against the Patriots. But once they got Cam Newton, you know, there's a little bit of more there's a little bit more confidence. But at the same time, people were looking at this Patriots team and being like, Yep, that team's gonna go five hundred. No way that team's gonna get anywhere close to the playoffs. But now we're seeing this Patriots team with a record going into week four of two and one. And this offense really coming into his own, and this defense is now looking the best it has throughout the entire season. So there's a lot of confidence going into week four as a Patriots fan, and there's also a lot of confidence as well just for the course of the season. But, you know, this really just shows it wasn't all Tom Brady. And Bill Belichick played a huge role in preparing his players to be ready for each week and to make sure that everybody did their job. And it just really shows that whatever happens to the Patriots, you just got to trust Bill. And as a Patriots fan, that's just what I've always learned and I've always tried to tell myself. Because as a Patriots fan, I mean, you've seen it. They trade guys left and right who went off the year before. But it always seems to work out for them because when those guys go go to other teams, they're never as effective as they were with the Patriots. And I think that's just due to the culture that Bill builds. That sounded kind of weird. But that was built by Bill Belichick and the Patriots over the course of these 20 years. And we really heard Cam Newton, when he first came to New England, how surprised and not only relieved he was with how winning-focused the Patriots culture was and how everybody just knows that their main focus is do your job. And so I want to go on next to a guy who has been taking the NFL by storm and a quarterback in Russell Wilson who has just not only, I don't want to say the word surprised because that's going to paint Russell Wilson as a guy who a lot of people didn't expect this. But I mean, for for somebody... For somebody, not only a quarterback, to set a record for 14 touchdowns in the first three games, you got to be looking pretty comfortable in that pocket. And you got to be feeling real good. So Russell Wilson is on a hot streak. And we saw in his first two games, especially his first game, you know, he was 21 for 25. His second game, he was 21 for 28. His past game, he didn't have that, he didn't have as good of a passing percentage, but at the same time, still able to throw five touchdowns. And when a guy's able to do that, you're throwing the ball pretty effectively. But when you just look at the games in general and don't allow the stats to fully paint the full picture for you, you really saw how comfortable Russell Wilson was in the pocket. It did not matter if there was a guy coming for his head. It did not matter if he had 
two seconds to throw the football, one second to throw the football. It always seemed like that Russell Wilson not only found a way to get the ball off in time, but he looked so comfortable. It seemed like his motion was so seamless that if a guy was two steps away from tackling his butt, it didn't matter. Russell Wilson just stepped back, slung the football, and and found a guy open. You know, it just looked too easy for him out there. And that's one of the biggest reasons why he has a touchdown to interception ratio of four to one. And he's been so effective so far. And right now, he is the early favorite to win the MVP. There's a lot of guys that are really up for the discussion. I mean, we're only going into week four. So who knows how all these guys who are performing this well at this moment in time, how well they're going to perform you know, coming into week 14, week 15, or even at the end of the season. You know what I mean? Sometimes people like, like to evaluate players way too early before they get a full sample size to understand exactly how effective they could be throughout a course of a season. But when you look at a guy who a lot of people thought was going to be in a similar position that Russell Wilson is in right now, it's Kyler Murray. But he threw three interceptions this last week and so it's going to be kind of tough for him to be able to catch up to the caliber that Russell Wilson is at right now and if you stacked both of these guys up comparably at the end of the season obviously depending on how each of them do but that game could really hurt Kyler's stats but who knows Russell Wilson could totally lose it and have some have a game very similar to Kyler and We could be saying the same thing about Russell Wilson next week. But now looking at a team in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who had so many expectations, not only because the greatest quarterback of all time and Tom Brady went down to Tampa Bay, but also because his best friend Rob Gronkowski went there too. And then also they picked up Leonard Fournette off of free agency. And so... The Bucks just had a massive influx of quality and high-performance players. And so they went from a team who everybody was really under, had, had so much uh, low expectations for the Buccaneers just because of how Jameis Winston has really led this team over the last four or five years. But now that they have all these premier players... Now everybody's looking at this team and is saying, well, they can't make any mistakes. They better win all these games. Brady must better look like he's freaking 25 out there in his prime. But that's just not the case. And we saw it in week one after Brady didn't have his best game. It, it really wasn't great. And we really saw everybody in the media just bombard the Bucks and Tom Brady for the poor performance. And just left and right, we saw on Twitter, Gronk looks like Jason Wynn. Why did he even return? He's so slow. And now looking at this team during week three, the offense has finally figured it out. Brady looks much, much more comfortable than previous weeks. And before, he looked like he was very rushed in the pocket. And now we're seeing him look very comfortable, throwing the ball very accurately. And it seems like... He just needed some time to get comfortable with the playbook, get comfortable with the guys around him because it's a brand new offense that Tom Brady is dealing with right now and brand new coaches as well. 
I mean, when you are with Bill Belichick for 20 years, when you're with Josh McDaniels, I think he was with him for around eight years, five to eight years or so. And when you're with the same franchise for 20 years, it's going to take you a little bit to be able to conform to the new offense, to the new culture in a new franchise. And so I thought it was very cool to see Tom Brady perform very well for the Buccaneers this past week. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how he's able to bounce off of this performance uh, for the rest of these weeks leading up to the end of the NFL season. Lastly, the last team that I wanted to bring up in for the NFL week three is the Dolphins. Now, the Dolphins are no joke. Fitz Magic went out there dominating versus the Jaguars, and his accuracy was on point. I mean, when you look at it, his statistics show it fully. He attempted 20 passes and completed 19. And it just seemed like any time the Jaguars wanted to find a way to stop him, they couldn't. And his legs were turning in as well. He was able to rush for 38 yards, and we even saw it with one of the touchdowns he was able to get. The Jaguars just looked confused because, I mean, it's not like we see Fitzmagic really running around the field a lot of the times. Not even Fitzpatrick, but at the same time, just 38-year-olds or late 30-year-olds in general. But one of the guys that really showed up for the Dolphins is Gaskin, the running back. He rushed for 66 yards over 22 rushes, and... We saw him just get most of the touches during the first half and just go off. And so this Dolphins team spent $127 million over the course of this offseason. And they had it. They had the money. And we're now finally seeing this team really show that all the money that they spent is really coming to fruition and is really paying off. Because the defensive pickups that they got this past offseason, especially like a guy like Kyle Vinoy, really showed up and have really come up clutched so far for this team. And it just shows how the team's depth in general has improved drastically. I mean, I've gotten the opportunity to watch the Dolphins for a long time just because I'm a Patriots fan. And obviously they play the AFC multiple times, three to four times a season. And so... It's really cool to see this Dolphins team really finding ways to be successful and really growing as just a team in general. And we heard Kyle Vanoy really speak to that on Pat McAfee's show this, this past week when he brought up how Fitzpatrick is the perfect big brother for Tua Tangloa because he always preaches how football is more about winning and about how... It's more about having fun and enjoying what you're doing. I think that's just really interesting, especially from a guy like Fitzpatrick, who has been in the league for 10-plus years. I think even more than that, 100% more than that, but I don't know the exact number. But at the same time, that comment speaks volumes for the kind of praise that the Dolphins have for Fitzpatrick and how Fitzpatrick could really have a big influ- influence Excuse me, on how successful Tua could be because we all know the development of a quarterback is first few months and first year especially in the NFL is where he's going to learn the most and really grow the most not only as a quarterback but as a person in general so I hope everybody has thoroughly enjoyed 
this show of Iggy Sports Talk and have been able to learn a little bit about some of the biggest topics and storylines that have come out of sports in this past week. My name is Jake Anizuski, and I greatly appreciate everybody tuning into this week's episode of Iggy Sports Talk. I will see you guys next week. I hope everybody has a great rest of their week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.